Hi, I'm Lynn Galadner, and you're listening to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a former journalist and the author of nine books, a writing coach, and a marketing expert. In this show, I interview authors and people in publishing about how they find inspiration, how they build their brands and choose their publishing paths, and most of all, how they find meaning in the mundane. If you want to learn more about how to get your writing career off the ground, visit my website, lingaladner.com, and check out the classes, programs, and retreats that I offer. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or on any podcast platform where you find the Make Meaning Podcast. I hope these stories give you the courage and confidence to make your writing dreams come true. Thanks for listening. Jonathan Whitelaw is an author, award-winning journalist, and broadcaster. After working on the front line of Scottish politics, he moved into journalism. There, he's written about everything, from breaking news to the arts, culture, and sport, and on to fashion, music, and even radioactive waste. His writing has appeared in The Sun, The Daily Mail, The Scotsman, STV, and The Scots Magazine, as well as numerous international newspapers and websites. He's also a regular reviewer on the BBC, specifically for arts reviews on the afternoon show on BBC Radio Scotland. Jonathan also regularly contributes to book events and festivals with appearances on the Blood Brothers podcast and the Bloody Scotland Book Club. His most recent novel, The Bingo Hall Detectives, features a mother and son-in-law detective duo trying to catch a killer in the Lake District of England. I'm thrilled to speak with Jonathan Whitelaw on this episode of the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Yes, yes. This is great fun. And there's so much that I have to ask you, starting with the fact that you wrote your first novel when you were just 17. I want to hear how that came to be and about those early years of writing. Yeah, wow. It was a long time ago now. Yeah. <laughs> and it feels even longer. That's what happens when you're, you know, when you've been a journalist for 12 years or what have you, that feels like 120 years, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that that was the thing about, I'd always written. Mm -hmm. Ever since I could write, I'd, I'd always written little stories. I remember going on vacation with my with my family when I was younger, maybe about five, six years old. Mm. And I always used to take my Star Wars action figures with me and my Lego and things like that. And it mm -hmm. got to the stage where it was getting really, really out of hand, as in like my parents were paying a small fortune every time <laughs> we went to the went to the airport in excessive baggage. Uh, yeah. So my, my stepdad uh, rather cleverly came up with the idea of giving me a pad and a, and a pen or a pencil and mm -hmm. saying we're not taking the, the toys with you no more x-wings and batmobiles and things like that in the case <laughs> but uh, what you can do is you can write you can write stories so that's what i used to do i used to i used to write the stories for my action figures at home my lego and things like that at home and then when i came back after you know whatever a week 10 days two weeks or what have you i used to act out i used to act out with the act out the stories that i'd written over the over the, the course of the vacation Oh wow! So so yeah, that that went on and on and on for for decades, obviously. And then it wasn't until I was about yeah sixteen, seventeen years old, round about that time, that mm -hmm. I I properly thought, Do you know what, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna make a stab of actually sitting down and writing like a proper narrative, start, mm -hmm. middle, end, and character mm -hmm. development and stuff like that. And honestly, I mean, I don't mind telling you, Lynn, it was the absolute worst, uh, the worst mashup of the <laughs> Hobbit meets Die Hard. <laughs> Um, and it, it, do you know I don't even have it I don't even have it anymore I don't no? uh, I, I don't even have the manuscript anymore but that's Aww. probably that's probably for the best it's been lost to history thankfully <laughs> lost to history 
Yeah. But it was, I mean, it was good fun. And, you know, some of the lessons that I that I taught myself and I learned as I as I did it, the discipline of actually sitting down, writing every day and character mm-hmm. development and stuff like that, you know, I, I still use those 20 odd years later. It's 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 remarkable. I learned I learned much more about myself mm-hmm. wanting to become a writer from it than I ever did in terms yeah. of writing anything good, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really such a lovely story, though, because it takes great discipline and focus and creativity to to want to sit down at such a young age and write a complete manuscript. And, you know, early manuscripts often are terrible, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> except for the odd lucky person. But oh, don't you I just think, hate them? <laughs> I know. Right. Like they get it right the first time around. It's like, who are you? And we cannot be friends, you know. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but I love that. And I, I think it's really a very tender story to hear about you writing stories for your action figures and and that creativity. And I love that you haven't abandoned the imagination and the creativity that you had in your youth. Because, you know, I teach a lot of writing and a lot of people come to me at midlife and say, I've always written, but, and they just sort of squelched it because it wasn't acceptable or it wasn't, you know, lucrative or whatever. And they have to resurrect the creativity. So it sounds like you've been able to keep it intact and help it grow over the years. Well, I've been very, very lucky. I've, I've had a very, very strong support network, you know, through my family who've always been very, very supportive of my writing, friends, my uh, wife, obviously, as well, and, and now my son. Everyone's always been very, very, very supportive of of my ambitions to be to be a full-time writer. And, you know, you, you make a really, really good point there, Lynn. I think that that's a big, big mistake mm-hmm. um, that people tend to make is that, you know, you're too old to start writing. You're too yeah. old to, to, to get your debut published. It's nonsense. It's absolute yeah. nonsense. As long as you are old, you know, as long as you can write and you can learn to write and you're willing to write, yeah, then it doesn't matter what age you are. And it's the same, it's the same the other way around. You're never too young either. That's that's yeah. the one wonderful part of this industry is that it's open-ended at either end. And and, and you really should never ever feel you never ever feel something like age is a barrier to to, yeah. to stopping you from putting some words down on the page. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And if it's something you love, it's you should just keep doing it because oh, all definitely. those outside voices, they will say all kinds of things, but that doesn't mean you have to listen to them, right? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely that. You know, I, I yeah, like yourself, I do a lot of teaching here in Canada. I work creative writing workshops and, and crime writing workshops, obviously, given that mm-hmm. I'm a, a crime author. And one of the first things that I always tend to teach in the, in the very, very first class is you've got to write that that's that's it if if you want to be a writer you've got to actually get the words done in the page and and often what i will say is there's no use me sitting here and saying write 2000 words a day or write 500 words a day mm-hmm. you've got to you've got to come up with what works for you because yeah. ultimately you're the one that's got to do it i yeah. can't write the book for you sure. you can't you can't write my books for me either and that's that's the great really it's actually quite liberating it's quite a liberating feeling to have when you know that it is all up to you it's yeah. intimidating as well i mean i still get it i still get it when i sit down and write a new project when you've got that blank word document facing you yeah um it's it is intimidating but it gets better the more you do it absolutely yeah. 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 I have so many questions, but then another one just popped into my head. So I'm going to go with it. But go you know it. that I just spent July in Nova Scotia. Yes. Uh, and so I drove from Detroit, which is right on the Canadian border and all yep. the way up and then drove back. And when I go places, I like to meet local authors and read books by local authors and about the place. And I, I find it so fascinating just to see the different styles and the different ways that people interact with culture and place and you know lineage and everything. And so I'm curious because I know that you're originally from Scotland, but you live in Canada. And I wonder how those two meet, if they do, in your writing or influence you, or have you seen changes since you went to Canada? You know, anything about that sort of impact or influence? 
It's, it's very interesting, Lynn, actually. It's a, a really, really interesting thing. At the time of recording, I've just come back from a from a big conference in, in Calgary, a big writing conference, book conference in, in Calgary called When Words Collide. Mm-hmm. We've been over, we've been over here in Canada just over a year. And I still go back to the UK for festivals and things like that and events. And mm-hmm. one of the big, big differences that I've noticed between events, book events, and, and the sort of literary world between Canada and the UK mm-hmm. uh, is the audience. Mm. So what I've found is audiences here in Canada are very, very attentive. And mm-hmm. I would say about 90%, 85-90% of the audience in events that I've done, whether at conferences or, or just you know my own sort of book events, mm-hmm. will be taking notes. Hmm. Whereas you tend to not get an awful lot of that over in UK really? events. Um, yeah, it, hmm. it, it, I think the... And, and this is coming from someone obviously who who is a reader and and, and attended these things before before I yeah. before I turned professional. Sure. Is that what you tend to find is with with the UK events is that the audience is maybe just there for that single book or that mm-hmm. particular writer. Okay. Whereas here in North America, I've found that there's maybe a little bit more uh, interest, a little bit more intrigue in the process of writing. You know, how do I get there? It's it's almost seen it's taken. I don't want to say it's taken more seriously because that's that's not really the, that's not really a fair description for the UK audience. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's taken more practically. Mm, uh, it's more okay. of a practical opportunity to quiz writers and yeah. how you got to that side of the fence or how you go about crafting character or plot or whatever, yeah. really. But, you know, the thing is, readers are readers, right? Yeah. We're all readers. Every writer is a reader. You're a reader. I'm a reader. It's still a fantastic opportunity. And, and everybody always really, really appreciates being in the audience and, 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 and learning the process. I love to hear the process of other writers. And I said yeah, this, I've said same. this forever. Yeah, you know, being on the being on the panel with two, three, four other writers or what have you, mm-hmm. uh, I'm as much in awe yeah. as as the audience tends to be because it, it's always fascinating to hear. You know, I, I mentioned it earlier, yeah. saying that there's no use in me saying to to my students write two thousand words a day mm-hmm. when that might not work for you. You might not have yeah. the time. You might have the inclination. Mm-hmm. It's just whatever works. And hearing it, hearing it, hearing that echoed, it tends to make me feel all right about myself when I've only managed say 25 words and it's taken me like six hours to get that far and <laughs> 20 of those words are absolutely awful so it's, it's nice that it's nice to, it's nice to share the pain I suppose <laughs> yes yeah yeah for sure so you're the first cozy crime writer to be interviewed on the make meaning podcast fantastic um, yeah can you tell our listeners about the genre and why you're drawn to it Certainly. So cozy mystery or traditional mystery is subgenre of the crime and mystery, a larger umbrella. Mm-hmm. And usually what you what you find is all the all the parts are are still there when it comes to cozy mystery. Mm-hmm. It just tends to be how it's packaged, how it's delivered. So I always tend to say that the the, the easiest way to describe a cozy mystery is that there's still a murder, but mm-hmm. you won't see the knife go in, for example. The okay. knife will either ha- the knife will go in off off camera, off stage, sure, or sure. The body will be discovered with the knife already in there. So the, mm-hmm. the the general rule of thumb tends to be that there's no gratuitous sex or violence in a cozy murder or a sort of a forensic deep dive into the investigatory process. Mm-hmm. And usually what you find is there's a greater emphasis on humor, on character, and on setting. So mm-hmm. so those are those are those are very, very broad rules. And of course, there are plenty of cozy writers out there that break those rules. Sure. Which is what rules are there for, right? <laughs> rules are there to be broken. This, but that's yeah. that's a, just a very, very uh, a very broad overview of of a of the difference between cozy and say a psychological thriller or a police procedural. 
Okay. And so what draws you to it? Why do you like to write in this genre? Well, I've always I've always loved it. I've always been a big, big Agatha Christie fan. I think a global resurgence of of cozy crime in the last sort of five, six years. I know that there are sort of academic studies that have been conducted over the years, not just necessarily in the, in the recent history, mm-hmm. that shows an uptake in popularity and sales of the cozy subgenre at mm-hmm. times of crisis. You know, whether oh, that's national crisis, international crisis, global crisis, that type of thing. Hmm. And we've all suffered a fairly rough few years recently. And I, I really don't think that there's a there's got to be a positive correlation between the two of them. One thing that I always love about Cozy Crime is I love character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love well-crafted character. I love humour as well. And I love that having that sort of safety net, that safety blanket, and the total escapism of, yeah. of Cozy Crime. Don't get me wrong, I still, I mean... You know, I, I still do a lot of review work and things, and and I read all kinds of crime, all kinds of uh, fiction, in fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still like sinking my teeth into a real, really good mystery that's maybe a police procedural where you will have a greater emphasis on the law enforcement and yeah. and things like that. But give me a cozy with an amateur detective, and I am yours, quite frankly. Yeah, and yeah, and it's it's always good fun, and I think having that total escapism and I think from a writing perspective as well like you know the bingo hall detectives it came out in 2022 so I was writing it throughout 2021 tail end of 2020 so that was right smack bang in the middle of the 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 global pandemic and the lockdown and things and just to be able to sit down and and get to know these characters and 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 escape the grim realities of what was going on because of course I was I was I was still working as a journalist at the time and Mm-hmm. There's nothing more grim than being a journalist, quite frankly. During a pandemic, especially, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. And, you know, so so that really brings up kind of a lot. Like, I think that writing humor is a, a huge challenge. To do it well is quite a skill. Is that something that you felt that you were always just able to do? Or did you really have to work at it to, to get that humor in? It's very kind of you, Lynn, to assume that I can do it. So thank you very much. <laughs> I'll take that. That's a win. <laughs> Yeah, do you know, I I grew up on a on a very very healthy diet of British sitcoms, <laughs> you know, North American sitcoms as well, but but mostly British sitcoms. And and there's there's a there's a wonderful pathos about British humour in particular. Mm-hmm. Terry Pratchett is a is a hero of mine okay. uh, with his Discworld novels and things, and obviously very very different, a very very different genre and subgenres to, to what I write. Yeah. But there was always a wonderful. I I always for, for my money he always had this wonderful talent of cutting down authority figures with one comment or one mm-hmm. line within mm-hmm. the dialogue or or within the narrative. Mm-hmm. And it was always something that I hugely admired because there's there's nothing. There's nothing more rewarding. There's nothing more fun than having a stuffed shirt. You know, someone yeah. who's in absolute authority who thinks they've got even more authority than they have. Yeah. And I think that's always been part of my part of my humor. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing with the Bingo Hall Detective series, obviously, it follows a mother-in-law and son-in-law amateur detective duo. And with my own mother-in-law, there's lots and lots of humor there. We don't see eye to eye all the time. I don't think any in-law sees eye to eye with with their with their other in-law yeah but i think there's always a, there's a lot of love there and, and yeah. they, I, I loved that relationship i've always loved that in-law relationship because yeah two very very different people mm-hmm. in that sort of venn diagram with the person and you know whether it's the daughter or the son sure. in common and two people who n- might necessarily never ever have met or right. certainly wouldn't hang out or get on. And mm-hmm. for me, that was just absolutely ripe for conflict, but it was also ripe for uh, an endearment and, yeah. and and humor, as you say, Lynn. And yeah. 
and good fun as well. And and yeah, yeah and, and I, 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 I mean, that's the thing. Like, again, that's the wonderful thing about cozy crime is that you get to have fun and you can have fun on nearly every page, even though there's, even though there's a horrible murder that has to be solved or there's a killer right. on the loose. Sure. So yeah, it's, it's hopefully it's good fun. Hopefully. Awesome. So tell me about your publishing journey. I know you first became a published author in 2015, but you've been writing far longer. So how did that first book come to be published? Uh, my my debut was in 2015, as you said, Morbid Relations, which is a it's a sort of dark uh, family drama. So very, very different to, to crime, mm-hmm. uh, to the crime world. And it was published with a, with a very, very small uh, independent publisher in Scotland called Ringwood Publishing, who are still mm-hmm. going as it happens. Mm-hmm. It was a case of I, because I was a journalist, I had quite a few connections and I built up quite a few connections and contacts within the publishing industry. So I was unrepresented. I didn't have an agent for mm-hmm. the longest time. Okay. Open submissions to the to to, to Ringwood at the time. They wanted, I think, 10,000 words, the first 10,000 words of the project. We got wow. chatting about it, sent them the full manuscript um, and they offered me a contract for it, which was which was great. And that, of course, yeah. was was my foot on the ladder. And it really sort of went on from there. So it wasn't until, it wouldn't have been until about 2020 that I got, or 2021, I beg your pardon, where I got got an agent, okay. the wonderful people, North Bank in London. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and, and since then, obviously turned full-time now that I've, since I've moved yeah. over to Canada, I'm a full-time author, which is which is a wonderful, wonderfully privileged position to be in and get yes. the right all the time. And yeah. it's hard. It's I mean, yeah. this is the thing, like you spend your whole career, you spend your whole life aspiring to be a full-time writer. And then when it comes along, you go, oh, hold on, this is actually really, really difficult. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're only weird. as good as your last book. And so, or so, your next book, actually. Absolutely so, that. Yeah. Absolutely that. Yeah. So you've had five books published since that first one, right? Five. Yeah, yeah. But you've only been represented for like like two years. So Last take two, me yeah. through so how many were unagented and how how do you keep up that pace? That's incredible. So so the first the first three were the were the unagented ones. And and then it's only been since the Bingo Hall Detectives came out that I've that I've had an agent. I mean, I think it's it's a, a lot of this industry's to do with endurance, I think. Yeah. And a lot of it is is stressed on you as the writer. A lot of it's luck. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is luck. You know, a lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that that was the thing. The the bingo hall detectives came about through through my journalism contacts, actually. And and uh, you know, I'd been doing my my publisher in the UK is Harper North, who are a, mm-hmm. a, a relatively new imprint of HarperCollins. Okay. Over here in North America with HarperCollins. Mm-hmm. Just just Harper Collins. Yeah. And it was a case of I'd been doing some review work for, for Harper North and mm-hmm. the conversation sort of moved, naturally moved towards me being introduced to their a wonderful publishing director, Genevieve Pegg, who's now my editor. Oh, wow. uh, and I just, I mean, I just sent like four one pitch, one line pitches to her at one point because she knew I was a writer. She knew that yeah. I'd been writing. She said, what are you working on at the moment, Jonathan? So I sent her four, four one line pitches and she uh-huh. really, really liked the sound of the bingo hall, what became the bingo hall detectives. Yeah. Because that was the thing, like that idea had come to me years ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about maybe five, six years ago Okay. where I'd been over at my mother-in-law's for Easter. Uh-huh. She stays in Northern Ireland uh-huh. and we'd gone over to visit her for Easter. And there was an old Irish pop star whose name unfortunately escapes me, but she <laughs> appeared on the television for an interview. Uh-huh. And I just completely off the cuff, totally glibly looked over to my mother-in-law, Margaret, and I said, Margaret, what would happen if she was murdered and you and I had to catch the killer? And bless her, <laughs> my my mother-in-law turned straight back and no hint of irony in her in her voice. She said, 
there would be two other murders, Jonathan, long before we got anywhere near the killer, namely you, yours and mine. So it I want to meet her. That, she sounds great. That was it. Oh, she is great. She's uh, the, the Bingo Hall Detectives is is dedicated yeah. to her. Uh, yeah. Who who else could it be dedicated right. to? Right. And, right. And there's there's a you know don't get me wrong that like Amita, who's the mother-in-law character mm-hmm. in the books, is is very very different to to, to Margaret. But yeah. there's there's a degree of similarity that write what you know, right? For sure. Um, yeah. But that was it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was just a one line pitch, and and they really loved it. And and I've I've been with Harper North ever since, and it's it's great. I mean, we're two books down in the series now. The third one I've just sent across a couple of weeks wow. ago. Congrats! And then there'll be a fourth in twenty twenty five. So okay. it's it's just grown arms and legs. It's it's been it's been yeah. Remarkable. So what's your practice like? Like, how do you write? Do you have like a daily thing, or how like how do you do to. it? Yeah, yeah. I, I try. I try to. I try to get something down every day particularly mm-hmm. if I'm working on a new project. So I'm taking a couple of weeks off at the moment um, mm-hmm. because I'm not going to start the fourth Bingo Hall books until book until uh, September. I've decided okay. that I'm going to start working on that in September because, of course, the edits are going to come back for the third one with a sure. with a view to it coming out next spring. Yeah, And that tends to distract me. But I lo- I mean, that's the thing, Lynn. I-, I love to write. You know, I love the process of writing. It's it's yeah. not, sometimes it feels like a chore. Sometimes it feels like hard work, but some, you know, it's not, it's not the hard work that, that, that I used to do, right? Yes. And it's I try to write something down every day, e- even if I'm not working on a new project. I'll try to either if it's like a one line of dialogue I hear or mm-hmm. a profile for a character or something that I can use later on. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like to do it when I am working on a project. Then it's yeah, it's it's sort of you know maybe two three hours in the morning, break for lunch, and then two three hours where I have to go pick up my son from daycare, mm-hmm. and then maybe in the evenings I'll do a little bit of editing. It, it just really depends on where I am in the book. You know, if, yeah. if it's the first sort of five chapters, then that tends to be quite intense and quite a lot of editing goes into that. Sure. Then, this, you know, up until about 30,000, 40,000 words, it can be a little bit maybe, I don't want to say lackadaisical, but it's not quite as intense. Yeah. And then the, the, the sort of second half of a novel, because my novels are always around about 90, 95,000 words, it tends to be quite intense and it will be, you know, I'll set myself a limit, set myself a target. Sure. I'm keeping my agent and the publishers in in in, in touch with. Um, what one thing that I will say is it's a sort of it's the fallout from being a journalist is that mm-hmm. I never miss a deadline. Yeah. If anything, I actually always beat my deadlines, and and my agent and my editors are all, always say that they they know that if they set me a deadline, they always go, Jonathan, we'll give you this date, but we know it's going to be in long before it. But um, <laughs> and and I'm grateful for that. Don't get me yes. wrong, I'm, yes. I'm really grateful that it's it's not the worst thing in the world, right? Far yeah. from it. Right, right, right. So, and you're a relatively new father, yes? How old is your son? I am. Yep. Henry's two and a half. Two and a half. So you're really in the thick of it, like very hands on. (laughs) And that must be a a big juggle. Very nice way of putting it. Well, I have four kids, so I completely understand. And it was like in four years. So it's just like, there was a time when I was sweating all the time and people hanging off me and bags of gear and stuff. And so thankfully those times are past. It it does go by, but enjoy it while you can, if you can. Absolutely. But is it is it a juggle? Is it hard? I mean, you're not doing the journalism anymore, so that must be a relief. Yeah, I'm not not doing as much. Not it's it's not you know I was an online journalist for twelve years for a a major tabloid newspaper in the UK, and I loved it. Loved every single second. As I, as I said in my my Libra speech, uh, some of my fondest memories were in that newsroom. Some of my very worst memories were in that newsroom. <laughs> Sometimes they were only hours apart. Sometimes they were minutes apart. <laughs> and I love journalism. I still. 
Mm-hmm. Still got lots, lots, and lots of friends in contact within the industry, and and it and it never ever it never ever leaves you. You know, you yeah. you, you never you can never switch it off. Mm-hmm. But it's been nice, like I said, it's been nice to be able to focus on my writing over the last sort of year, fifteen months or so, and 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 dip more dip into my journalism than 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 being chained to the desk eight days a week. You know, yeah. And in terms of kind of juggling, again, very very supportive family. You know, yeah. it's 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 hard. You know, it's it, don't get me wrong, it's hard. Like I'm as I, as I mentioned before, I'm still back back and forth across the Atlantic for events and yeah. away for four. I mean, I was away again at time of recording. I was away for a weekend, and yeah. and my wife was was with. Him. Henry for for the whole for the whole weekend and mm-hmm. you know she's she's wonderful she's much a mother to me as as, as she is to Henry and she's the, <laughs> very much the the matriarch of this family and and I couldn't do it without them um yeah. with, without their support and without their help and without um them just constantly being there in fact the village hall vendetta is dedicated to both of them and and that's just a very 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 small very small thank you to to their to their uh, endless support yeah. but as i always say i mean that's the thing you know one of, one of the big things that i always try and put across in my in my classes mm-hmm. and anybody that asks anybody that cares to, to listen mm-hmm. is that to get a book on a shelf mm-hmm. uh, it takes a village you know it, it, it really really takes a village whether that's friends and family to support you as the writer to, to give you time to write it yeah. or from the professional point of view, when it's marketing people, editors, salespeople, the publishers, the, the you know the printing of it as well, it's, it, it it genuinely does take a village. It's not. It might be one name on the front, but it doesn't. Yeah. It's more than that one name. Yeah. Um, that takes it to get to that stage. And and I am so so appreciative. So so very very appreciative of all the of all the help and all the support that I've that I've been given now for years. It's yeah, I can't believe that. Yeah, yeah I still feel like a rookie. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, I got chills when you said it because it's just it's really true. And people don't realize that. They just think, oh, celebrity yeah. author. But, you know, there is a, a lot that goes on behind the scenes. So I want to um, ask you something about, you know, the difference between Canada and the UK. And and I would say the US also, you know, like I was in Scotland, as you know, in uh, May, met a lot of authors. The topics they wrote about, I don't know if some of them would, would find a publisher in the States and vice versa. Yeah. The marketing can be different. The audience yeah. expects different things. You know, I... I was up in Northumbria for a while and I bought a, a, a book by L.J. Ross. So anyway, I can't find L.J. Ross on any shelves in the States, but yeah. I was at, oh my God, I'm forgetting it now, uh, Bamberg Castle. And oh, yeah. so there was a book about Bamberg Castle and I was at Holy Island and all these places. Yeah. And and so I'm like, oh, cool. I like reading local stories. And it was it was a cute little mystery. And so that's a whole series writer that we don't have, but it has, you know, a huge audience in the UK. So I'd love to hear how or if your marketing has changed or had to change or expanded so you can include North American readers while yeah. still holding on to your loyal readers back across the pond. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting point that you make, Lynn. I think there are no changes really between the between the publication of my books either side of the Atlantic. So it means that when you pick up when you pick up the Bingo Hall Detectives in Edmonton or Calgary or Halifax or Los Angeles or what have you, mm-hmm. it's the same as it would be if you picked up in Liverpool, Glasgow, London, mm-hmm. etc. So wait, um, so the covers the same? Covers exactly the same. The only okay. the only di- this this is where I get to show off how much of a book nerd I am, and I'm <laughs> and, you know I'm proud about it. I, I, I'm proud until I start talking about it. But the only difference is right. The only difference is between the covers. Uh, oh, the books are bigger actually over here in North America, as oh. in they're physically bigger. They're they're a bigger size. Is that true? Yeah. in just in Canada or also in the U.S.? Because I noticed I be- books are bigger in Canada than they are here. I I believe it's. I, I think it will depend on the publisher, but I believe it might be both okay. up and up, both both sides of of our border. 
Um, okay, interesting. I'm not sure. Don't, okay. don't quote me on it. But one okay. of, one of the uh, one of the really really fascinating parts that I really love, and and this is the this is the great thing about my editor Jen because she 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 let me know obviously when HarperCollins Canada we're, we're going to be making a big thing of it obviously mm-hmm. because I'd moved over here, mm-hmm. and she said, "Here we go, Jonathan. Here's the here's the cover. It's exactly the same, but for two differences, two mm. major differences or minor differences, I guess. Okay. The first one is that it includes a novel." underneath the title. So instead of it just being the Bingo Hall Detectives or the Village Hall Vendetta, it's Bingo Hall Detectives, a novel, Village mm. Hall Vendetta, a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, the other difference, and this is this is this is what got my uh, my my book nerd spidey senses tingling, mm-hmm. is that the quotes from a uh, from the, the endorsement quotes that I've got on the front covers of them, rather than have two a quote marks it's mm-hmm. just the one and apparently that's just a style difference. That's just a style thing between difference <laughs> between either side of the Atlantic. Okay. And, you know, nobody would notice this, right? No. I probably wouldn't have even noticed it unless somebody flagged it up to me. But it's okay. it's just these little just these little sort of intricate uh, details mm. that are different. The book itself is exactly the same. It's uh, it's exactly the same. And I think I think there's probably a degree of it being a cozy crime that that makes that difference. Is that again location is is so integral to the to the series. So it means yeah. you couldn't really transpose Penrith in the Lake District of the UK for, say, where I am, Grand Prairie in Alberta. Yeah. Because they're very, very different, very, very similar, but very, very different as well and different yeah. culture and things like that. Sure. Um so what what I've what I've found is I've had to do a lot more explanation actually than I thought. So mm. one of the big, big things is one of the one of the one of the biggest feedback, the best feedback that I've had for the Bingo Hall Detectives is the chapter titles. Mm. So the chapter titles are bingo calls in the UK. Because now, and I didn't know this till I came over here, but bingo, in terms of the functionality of it as a game, either side of the Atlantic, is principally, you know, principally the same thing. Okay. However, the balls, the numbers are different in the UK to what they are really? in North America. So I understand huh. North America, it's things like D17, F4, B6, that type uh-huh. of thing. Whereas in the UK, it's just a number. And there's this sort of subculture within UK bingo where it's sort of rhyming slang for every for every or or, or a rhyming phrase for every uh, every number. So, mm. for example, uh, number one is Kelly's eye. So that's what the bingo caller will say. They'll go Kelly's eye number one. They'll go oh one, one little duck number two because it kind of looks like a kind of looks like a duck, I suppose. Huh. So I all, all the all the chapter titles in the bingo hall detectives are named after the 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 relevant bingo call for okay. that number. Uh-huh. Chapter one is Kelly's eye, and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. I've had to explain this, and I've—I'll <laughs> be honest. I'll be honest with you, Lynn. Some of the expressions that I've had in rooms uh, all over Canada, actually, yeah. I've, I've been blank, vacant, perplexed, delighted as well. I should—I should add. <laughs> so little, little things like that. I mean, don't get me yeah. wrong. It's like I've grown up with bingo. You know, I—I I, yeah. my, my grandmother was was a was a uh, an addict to, to a bingo <laughs> addict, and and that's where kind of where the ideas came from and stuff. So it's it's been it's been quite nice for me to to explain these types of things on uh, various events and podcasts and shows like this. It's it's yeah. I, I think it adds to the I think it adds almost to the mythos. I think yes, it adds sure. that, that that sense of place and hopefully hopefully sort of opens that door to the type of humor that's that held within. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Now are you finding that Canadian readers already knew about you in the books or is this new for them? On the most part, I think it's new for them. I mean, what's what's amazed me is just how how widely available it is from from coast to coast. I mean, that's that's like a dream come true for me as an author, for any author, I guess. I mean, yeah. I've been into I've been into indigo and chapter stores 
um, all over Canada now, and it's always there. It's I it's it. it's always on the shelves, and and I'm always I'm all I mean I'm I'm I always get really nervous. Like when I go into the to, to the stores, like I'll go in and I'll I'll go and check if if the book's on the shelf already, uh-huh. and then I'll very you know I'll, I'll be as polite as I can and go up to the the staff and and ask them if if they want me to sign the copies for the for the uh-huh. uh, uh, for the store. And yeah. nobody's ever said no yet, but I always yeah. get really really nervous that they'll go absolutely not, Jonathan. Why on earth would we, would you let would we let you deface our books? But they've right. never done it, and they're always delightful to chat to. And it's it's one of the really really lovely lovely parts of being an author is that you get to speak to booksellers in in that capacity. All again, all over the world now, which is which yeah. is really really remarkable. I will tell you, Colleen Hoover, the novelist, oh, yeah. you know Colleen Hoover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she goes into Walmart and she just takes her books and starts signing. She doesn't <laughs> tell them ahead of time. So that's the difference between an American and uh, you know somebody from the UK or we're, Canada who are much nicer people. But yeah, we're we're clearly <laughs> still far too uh, far too sensitive and 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 suffering too much from our own uh, from our own our own uh, sense <laughs> yeah. of, of place. Yeah. Yeah. So as we near the end of our conversation, I wonder if you have any advice. For for our listeners about writing, publishing, building an audience, you know, any yep. last words to leave them with? Well, one of the one of the things that I always try and impart in my workshops and things, it's it's a phrase. It's it sounds a bit cliched, but actually it's it's a mantra that I try to live by, particularly if they, particularly before you become, say, a full-time writer, indeed a published writer. And that phrase is you don't have to be a professional writer to be professional about your writing. Mm. And in short, that means that educate yourself in the industry. It is an industry. It's it's a multi-billion dollar global industry. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I always tell the students, you wouldn't be expected to go and perform open heart surgery on someone without first going to medical school, or right. you wouldn't be expected to work in, in Wall Street without knowing how all of that system works, without that education. Yeah. And the publishing industry is exactly the same. So yeah. this can be something simple as knowing if you're at that querying stage, knowing what agents are open for submission if they are open what are they looking for is it the first ten thousand words the first Mm -hmm. five chapters what do they want in their cover letter i mean save yourself time but also come across as being professional too right and and i always i always add the caveat that a lot of this industry like i said before a lot of it is luck a lot of it's been in the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. but i think you can make a lot of your own luck in this industry and you can save yourself a lot of time as well by for example there's no use if you've written a crime novel sending it to an agent who only specializes in sci-fi and fantasy or romance right. or what have you you know save yourself time and 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 be professional about it do do them the professional courtesy of of doing your research uh, education 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 know how the industry works yeah. and just arm yourself with as much knowledge as you can and and like i said try to be as professional as you can you don't need to be a pro writer to be professional about your own writing and and yeah. that goes all the way back to when you start and you sit down and you work and you do the work and then you edit it and get it into as best shape as possible and always be flexible i always mm-hmm. say that to, to my students always 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 be flexible in every element of the of of the industry whether that's deciding what road to go down with your narrative adding in a particular character losing characters or indeed, uh, taking sort of suggestions and taking feedback from editors or or agents or publishers. Just always be flexible and always be always be open to learning. Love it, I love it. Well, Jonathan Whitelaw, thank you so much for being on the Make Meaning podcast. Not at all. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org 
or lynngaladner.com.